Okay, welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for single payer healthcare. I'm Mark McKinley. I'm a volunteer with the group. We're recording today's program, October 28th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. So let's get this show on the road, Mike. Yeah, let me begin with the usual disclaimer. Uh, the views that um, uh, I will express today are my personal views and do not represent the views of either Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. And my views are also my personal views and do not represent the uh, views of Taylor Regional Hospital or the Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. So our topic for today is uh, gun violence as a public health issue. Uh, we have a guest uh, speaker, uh, Keith Miller. Uh, Keith is a general surgeon, a uh, member of the faculty of the University of Louisville Department of Surgery, and is uh, a member of the U of University of Louisville Hospital Trauma Service and deals with this issue uh, on a on a regular basis. Keith, uh, we appreciate your willingness to spend some time with us and talk about this, uh, this important issue. Um, as we have done in the past with our Zoom guests, we're gonna give you a few minutes to uh, make whatever initial opening statement or, or whether you just wanna lay out a bunch of um, topics that you'd like to discuss. So we're gonna give you the floor and then uh, the conversation will begin. Okay, well, thank you. First, it's an honor and a privilege that you all asked me to be a part of this. Um, I think I should probably make the same disclaimer. Many of these views are my own. Uh, this is certainly a highly charged, politicized issue. And so uh, I try to be precise and take care in how we talk about this issue as it is a, it's actually multiple different issues. But, uh, you know, I think if given uh, the, the microphone for a short period of time, I think the, the major message that I would try to uh, put out there, clearly the title of this show, which is that gun violence is a public health issue. Uh, it's probably not just one public health issue. It's probably several public health issues tied up under uh, the umbrella uh, terminology of gun violence. But, uh, and people get tired of hearing that maybe at least around here or around me uh, because maybe uh, I don't make it clear why that's so important or we have as a medical and surgical community haven't made it clear why that is an important distinction to be sort of classified as a public health issue and it really comes down to the fact that we treat public health issues differently uh, when you look at the public health model you talk about defining a problem uh, being very precise in how you define that problem, identifying risk and protective factors. Uh, you develop and test strategies that can prevent these injuries, primary, secondary, tertiary preventative strategies. And then once you find uh, strategies that are successful, you assure widespread adoption and implementation of those strategies into uh, what you do on a daily basis. That, uh, that's a long-winded explanation, but uh, unfortunately, this approach has not been applied to gun violence in the past for a variety of reasons, and we can get into those as time goes on if you choose to. Uh, I think 
some of them are pretty obvious. I mean, uh, you know, there's been inadequate funding. There's a fatalistic attitude towards gun violence in general, meaning uh, there is no solution to this problem, quote unquote, uh, which is uh, uh, one that we've been very quick to adopt, uh, which is not true. Um, you know, I think uh, it requires interdisciplinary research, which I think today we're getting better at, but have historically not been all that great at. There's certainly opposition from special interest groups. There's perception issues. There's data gaps here. And so um, I think as you begin to approach it as a public health issue, uh, it becomes a more uh, uh, a more approachable issue. Um, our understanding of what a public health issue is today versus what it our understanding of that was uh, 12 months ago is very different. I think the public has a very good idea of what a public health approach to uh, infectious disease, for example, COVID-19 is. Um, I used to say that, uh, uh, you know, motor vehicle accidents, uh, we've had, we've applied a public health approach, but it was never politicized in the way that gun violence has, and many of our public health approaches have not been. However, we have seen the political, <laughs> we have seen our approach to COVID-19 politicized in many ways. Uh, so I've sort of lost the ability to say that, but uh, I think that's the important message that I would try to push uh, sort of in the opening comments here. And uh, so uh, at that, you know, we'll kind of move on to your questions and things that you might believe that your listeners would rather hear than me ramble on. Okay, let's uh, let's kind <clears> of <throat> uh, most of our uh, listeners uh, whoever they are, are not uh, medically backgrounded people. So this is not surgical grand rounds. So what I would ask you to do, at least initially, is kind of a laying a foundation of, of the, uh, just how the medical issue, without getting into too many details, uh, let's just take a patient who has a gunshot wound, which is serious, but not fatal. Uh, I say gunshot wound of the abdomen where it may have a couple of small bowel injuries and maybe a liver injury or something. But take them through from the ER to the operating room, to the intensive care unit, to the floors, at, to rehab, just to kind of give our listeners a sense of what happens when somebody who's got a gunshot wound who hasn't died on the way to the hospital? What what happens to them? You know, the, when when they get wheeled into the emergency room? Yeah, that's a great question, and there's a lot of issues tied up in that. So first of all, you know, a question you might ask is, well, some of it will depend on where you're at geographically. I mean, I assume we take it from you know someone that's injured or shot in Louisville. Uh, would be brought to a trauma center. The American trauma system uh, has uh, uh, centralized care, meaning that patients from outside trauma center regions will be brought to trauma centers to, to receive care for these types of injuries. But so if you're shot in the abdomen here, um, either EMS or by private car, you'll be brought to the emergency department. What will happen will be uh, uh, a level one activation, which means that the hospital's full capabilities and resources will greet you at the door of the emergency department. Um, you'll be uh, uh, taken to a resuscitation room. A resuscitation room has emergency room doctors, trauma doctors, uh, radiolo or, uh, uh, radiologists, um, nurses, respiratory therapists, the whole gamut of what the hospital sort of has to offer. 
You'll be stabilized in the emergency department. Typically that involves stopping bleeding onto the ground, um, which can also, also be done by civilians in the field. Uh, following resuscitation for an abdominal gunshot wound in particular, the large majority of those will be transferred from the emergency department to the operating room. Uh, University Hospital has an operating room that's available at all times and we can, we can get up there three, five, seven, 10 minutes we can sort of get patients out of the emergency department if it's clear to us that they're going to require operative intervention. They go to the operating room. We fix whatever uh, litany of injuries are involved there, as you mentioned. Um, uh, that involves a multidisciplinary team as well. Anesthesia is instrumental uh, in resuscitation during that period of time with blood. By resuscitation, I basically what I'm meaning is restoring volume or restoring uh, blood uh, during the operation. After that, they go to recovery, depending on the severity of their injuries. Many will spend some time in the ICU during that period of time. You're making sure that all those organ functions are, uh, uh functioning appropriately, uh, and monitoring for re-bleeding and things along those lines. As the patient improves, they transition to the floor, uh, as they get out of the ICU, they begin, you know, more aggressive therapy, physical therapy, getting up out of bed, trying to return to that baseline function, depending upon what their injuries are. Many will require uh, post-acute care rehabilitation. By that, I mean, after you leave the hospital, there will be a phase where they transition to inpatient rehabilitation, meaning they stay in the rehabilitation center and do therapy for three, four, five hours a day, which is not the intent of the hospital is fixing injuries and then they transition to rehab. And then the care after that, again, depending on their injuries, lasts weeks to months. And uh, that's just the uh, physiologic continuum. Uh, and then there's also the emotional and mental aspects of being shot as well. Yeah. So let me just want one, one or two quick follow-up questions before I turn this over to Gene. So, you know, for the, 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 the patient with the maybe two small bowel in perforations or injuries and a relatively minor liver uh, laceration or something. So how long would they be in the hospital before they moved out to wherever they're going next, where they went home or go to a rehab situation? Yeah, you know, so typically that, that would- yeah. yeah, so typically that would be sort of a five to 10 day hospitalization typically. Um, five would be pretty quick, honestly, with what you described. Yeah. Uh, and after that 10 day period, they would transition potentially to rehab. It all depends on um, what their functional status is. By that, I mean, how they're able to do and perform what we call the activities of daily life, getting up, changing clothes, you know, showering. Um, and uh, so that would be a typical inpatient stay for that type of injury. This so, is why this is a hard issue to discuss because we're talking about a couple of bowel injuries and a liver injury, but uh, the injuries after firearm injury uh, span the entire body. I mean, spinal cord no, injuries. I, I, I understand. I just wanted to kind of get our, our listeners in a kind of a sense of get some, some idea without making it too complicated. One more last quick follow-up question before I turn this over to Jane. Do you have any kind of a broad brush sense of the the cost? The When I say the cost, what would the bills look like at the end of the day for the process you just described to me, if, if you have a sense about that? 
Yeah, so there's national numbers. We have a few numbers here locally that we kind of looked at this a few years back. So a little bit of it's outdated, but uh, I think uh, nationally, if you're talking about a specific injury or a specific individual, their hospitalization, you might be surprised or your listeners might be surprised to know that about 35 to 40% of people that are injured by firearm will not be admitted to the hospital. They'll have soft tissue injuries. An emergency department visit Cost and charges are two different things. Yeah, we all understand <laughs> uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so cost might be around $2,000. If you look at national numbers, you're looking at about $5,000 for you're seen in the emergency department, you're treated, and you're sent home from the emergency department. When you look at hospitalizations, there's a wide range. Um, typically, you're talking about cost, meaning flat just cost of $25,000 to $35,000, depending on which piece of literature you choose to acknowledge. Charges, you're looking at $95,000, $100,000. Certainly, uh, we looked at it specifically from a cost perspective. Where you get shot does play a role in how much it costs. Uh, typically, your extremity injuries are going to cost less, $10,000. Your abdominal injuries are going to be very expensive, $25,000, just because of utilization of operating rooms, post-operative care, and those sorts of things. So it is tremendously financially costly to, to care for these injuries. That's great. Thanks, Gene. Well, I guess the next question is, uh, who pays for this? I know that um, when I was a resident at the old little general hospital, it was essentially a tax supported hospital, and most of the patients didn't have any insurance. Uh, now it's become more complicated, but at, at the university hospital, how do y'all get reimbursed for all these gunshot wounds? Well, there's a continue, you know, I mean, I think if you look nationally again, you know, you all are just like me as a surgeon, you never look at individual payer status. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You're going to uh, provide the best care that you can, regardless of what their insurance status is in every case. Um, so you don't get a real good idea of it individually. If you look at national numbers, you're going to see numbers anywhere from 25 to 40% are going to be uh, self-pay. That means essentially uh, uninsured, uh, you'll see 25 to 40% are going to be sort of government insurance, Medicare, Medicaid sort of things. Um, and then, uh, the smaller percentage is going to be privately insured. Um, so that's sort of just a general, uh, uh, proportion of where that funding comes from. Um, and we could go into a little more detail on that if you have specific questions, but. Well, let's go back a little bit to you. You made some reference to the wide range of injuries. Um, when I was a resident, which was back uh, before the assassination of Lincoln uh, at the <laughs> University of Louisville Hospital, <clears throat> uh, most of the most of the trauma were either low velocity uh, missile injuries or knife injuries. A long time ago and far, far away, I, when I was younger, I had the experience of being in a place where I, I was exposed to a lot of high velocity missile injuries. And I was impressed about how much damage a high velocity wet missile bullet can do to the soft tissue or the hard tissue in the human bodies. Um, 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 this is a roundabout way of getting to the question of, are you, you see mostly low velocity or high velocity missile injuries today? Yeah, you know, I think uh, 
the availability of data to answer that question is pretty limited. I can say that we looked at, uh, you know, gunshot wounds to the chest uh, over five decades. And Dr. Richardson uh, uh, was responsible for some of the five decades ago stuff. And then uh, the rest of us were responsible for the more recent data. But uh, if you looked at gunshot wounds to the chest, what you'll see is uh, how many, for example, cardiac injuries do we treat today uh, versus what were treated in the 70s? And um, uh, you'll see that we actually uh, treat less cardiac injuries today. Why is that? Well, we speculate that if you are shot in the heart uh, today, your chances of making it to the hospital are extremely low versus a 22 or a smaller caliber, lower velocity weapon in the 70s. I think your chances of making it to the hospital uh, by extension, you know, we operate on more chest gunshot wounds today than we did five decades ago. Why is that? Again, uh, the, 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 the associated parenchymal destruction, lungs and bleeding, um, you know, is going to be substantial to the point where obviously if you look at it from a public, what's your goal when you're operating on a, on a gunshot wound, most of the time it's control of bleeding. And that's going to be a function of where you're shot and what degree of tissue injury you have. And so what we've seen over that five decade period is increased number of operations, less operations to the, more operations to the lung, less operations to the heart, probably because those patients rarely survive to make it to the hospital. Yeah, gee. Well, when I was a resident, uh, we essentially learned how to operate on, uh, uh, in general, from gunshot wounds. We had to be up all night long taking care of gunshot wounds, but most of the uh, uh, people who were doing the shooting was somebody in a family who was uh, mad at somebody else in the family, domestic uh, violence. Now, has that changed? Uh, is it, are we seeing more entry secondary to drug deals, the gangs, and uh, or, or is it about the same? So, yeah, that's a loaded, that's a good question and a loaded question. By that, I mean, um, uh, so we have to be precise in how we talk. So for me, um, what you're talking about is a subset of gun violence in general, which would be interpersonal injury. Um, if you look at gun violence, you'll see uh, sort of four major groups. You'll see in, intentional self-inflicted injuries. Uh, which some might say is not gun violence. You'll see interpersonal injuries. You'll see unintentional injuries, meaning you accidentally shot yourself or someone else. Uh, and and uh, then you'll see uh, shootings involving law enforcement. And so I think um, those are sort of the four big groups. You're asking specifically about interpersonal injuries. If you look across the country, most deaths are going to be from intentionally self-inflicted injuries. Uh, that's going to be 60 to 65 percent of the deaths that we see across the country of that hundred that, you know, die on a daily basis. Two thirds of those are going to be from intentional self-inflicted injuries. Uh, and the majority of the rest are going to be interpersonal injury. Um, and so uh, interpersonal injury is. But if you look from a hospital perspective, most of what we see is interpersonal injury. And why is that? Well, that is because of what we call a case fatality rate, which means that uh, what are the chances when you sustain an injury or a gunshot wound that you die from those injuries? And uh, a high case fatality rate means it's very likely that you'll die. A low case fatality rate means it's uh, less likely that you'll die. So 
if you uh, uh, self-inflicted intentionally self-inflicted injury is going to have an 85 to 90 percent chance that you uh, do not survive those injuries. Many of those are pronounced dead at the scene uh, and are not brought to the hospital. So the majority of what we see uh, are interpersonal injuries. I think I uh, sort of avoided answering your question. Uh, except to say that uh, oftentimes you don't have a lot of granular data as to what led to the injury. And that is a major issue uh, when you talk about gun violence as a public health issue, meaning we don't, if you, if you want to look at car accidents, there's hundreds of variables collected on every death for every fatality from a car accident. Those just aren't available for, for uh, uh, firearm fatalities. So the ability to answer your question is somewhat limited by what data we have available. Well, Keith, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you the same question in a kind of slightly different way. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe not still get an answer. <laughs> well, uh, well, we'll see. And I, I want to let you know, we, we had uh, Wayne Tuxon on here a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him the same question. So uh, at a Grand Rounds that was done some years ago, it's not tons of years ago, and I don't know whether it was your Grand Rounds or um, whether it was Matt Benz, but I came, what I came away from uh, that grand rounds was uh, that the homicides from the West End were mostly young black men killing each other. And the homicides from the East End were middle-aged and older white men killing themselves. Uh, so the question is, uh, uh, is that still true? And if it is, uh, you know, what are the issues that are uh, that you know out there that because they're both public health issues, different ethnic groups? Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a complicated question. And again, coming back to what we talked about earlier, when you look at this from a public health yes. approach, it, it allows you to 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 maybe parse out some of these observations that you're making. Um, I think, you know, part of it is, you know, what do the populations look like in different parts of Louisville? Um, and so proportionately, your African-American population is going to be a higher percentage of the total population in the West Side. Now, who shoots who? We don't exactly have that data, like to, to say that an African-American shot an African-American. We don't have that type of data. What we have is uh, who was shot and where they're shot. And what you'll see is that uh, intentional self-inflicted injuries do not um, uh, do not group quite as well as uh, as interpersonal injuries. Uh, by that, I mean, from a public health approach, you have to ask the question: Why are we observing what we're observing? If you go back and look at redlining specifically, and uh, you know, we talked about this with Dr. Tuxon as well, and I think redlining was a policy that was instituted in the late 30s after the Great Depression. And it was a way to evaluate where to reinfuse capital in the United States. Meaning you're coming off the Great Depression, you want to rebuild cities in our country. And so they tried to determine where they should invest money. And this was a homeowner, homeowner's loan uh, that was the predominant pathway whereby they did this. And so they created what are called security maps, or they are now known as redlining maps. Louisville has a redlining map. Uh, most major cities in the United States have redlining maps. And if you look at that, 
areas were classified in different colors. And this may be a long-winded explanation that you don't uh, uh, have time uh, to hear, but the, the different colors in the maps were red, yellow, green, and blue. Red areas were uh, disproportionately higher percentages of African-Americans were often in undesirable areas, meaning if you look at Louisville's floodplain map, much of the redlined areas or much of the red areas were in within the floodplain in Louisville, meaning it was very difficult to build lasting structures because they would be decimated in regular intervals by floods so that generational wealth through housing was not able to be uh, obtained. And these were largely African-American populations, whereas a green area might be a more homogenous, mostly white group uh, area. And uh, so this is a form of structural and institutional racism from the 30s. What we did was we took that redlining map, which is a point in time, and we took where, uh, where uh, patients that sustained fire injuries were from. And what you'll see is that it's five to six times higher from interpersonal injury alone, not looking at intentional self-inflicted injuries, but you're looking at interpersonal injuries alone, you see a five to six times higher rate in areas that were codified as D type areas or redlined areas. So how do you explain that? What does that mean? Well, uh, it suggests, or one could speculate that targeted or very intentional policies have impacted what we say see today in gun violence. And many of those risk factors will overlap with that. And so uh, that's a long answer to your question and may dodge your question to some degree. But I think that looking at issues and contributors, disinvestment in vulnerable populations over time has likely contributed to what we observe today. Well, just to give you a, a follow-up, we had Wayne Tuxen on a couple of weeks ago, asked him the same question, and we got a very similar answer. Uh, the only difference was uh, Wayne uh, used some uh, terminology that got Mark nervous, and he had to sanitize. <laughs> he had to sanitize. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I understand. Program a little bit. Yeah, I understand, Doctor Tuxen. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, if, I understand his uh, his terminology, and I would probably use the same. If he was pretty spicy, Gene. He should be. Well, when when the public thinks about gun violence, they usually think about. Uh, uh, gun violence uh, in in the ghetto or in a shopping center where somebody takes an AK and and shoots a lot of people and kills them, but uh, we hardly ever think about uh, suicide, and that's actually uh, the largest cause of death from gun violence. Could you discuss that a little bit and? Uh, uh, and is that going up? Uh, is it causing a public health problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a significant contributor to mortality, particularly if you look at Kentucky, both from a homicide and suicide rate, we are much higher than the national average, suicide by firearm being a, being a common contributor. And um, as you said, or as we've said, you know, 60 to 65% of fatalities in the United States are from firearm are related to intentional self-inflicted injuries. I think that's why I say that, you know, if you look at gun violence as a public health issue, it's probably more than one issue. There's going to be uh, policies and procedures that you implement that address all of these things, meaning there are going to be overlapping issues. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, firearm excess, who owns firearms, some of those things are going to be applicable to all these, uh, all these um, forms of gun violence or, or subsets of gun violence. 
mental health issues, um, access to care uh, from a mental health perspective is probably going to fall more underneath intentional self-inflicted injuries or be more relevant to that. That is not what we've seen as a significant contributor to interpersonal injuries. Um, and so uh, I think uh, to answer your question, I think that that, that is part of, of, of sort of an umbrella or a, a uh, 30,000 foot approach to these problems in general. Now, it's my understanding <clears throat> that uh, the trauma service has got uh, some type of an educational program that you're working with folks in the West End to, to try to figure out ways to, to have some uh, positive impact on the high gun violence rates in, in, uh, in Louisville. Um, I mean, I'm a, could you kind of explain that to us a little bit? I think this is something that I think most people are not aware of. And I think it's a real credit to the trauma service to, to be doing this. And I think that this would be a good thing to let the listeners know about. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's a violent injury prevention program, and it's not applicable just to the West End, but anyone that sustains a violent injury, regardless of where you're from, sure. in Jefferson County, outside of Jefferson County. And I think this is from the realization that although I'm a dumb surgeon and basically I'm sort of somebody that stops bleeding and patches holes and does those the same kinds of things that you all have done throughout your career, um, um, maybe in a better fashion than what I've done, but uh, same, same end point, I think uh, we realize that... Uh, it doesn't do any good to do that on an individual and to have to do that on the same individual six, 12 months later. Uh, we call that recidivism, meaning the chance that you are injured once and you sustain the same injury uh, later down the road. Uh, we have a university uh, determined that uh, from our entire population, you're looking at a 15% chance of being shot again within a 10 year period. If you look at subgroups, uh, you'll see in certain subgroups, you've got a 35% chance of being shot a second time. And so we tried to evaluate what the risk factors perform a needs assessment as to what might allow patients to remove themselves from the circumstance that may have contributed to being injured. Some people don't have uh, any of the classic risk factors. Some people have all of them. Uh, so it's a very individual targeted approach. It is what we call a teachable moment, uh, meaning that uh, this is a very defined moment in time where, where someone has suffered an injury. They may be more receptive to a helping hand than they might be during other parts of, uh, of their lives. And so we try to take advantage of that. Um, uh, we've got uh, uh, three social workers. We've got three community health workers. What they do is they uh, uh, assess the patient, do a needs assessment. You're talking about educa education, housing, um, jobs, uh, resources. It runs the gambit of what you might uh, feel like uh, a patient that to sustain these injuries might require. They perform that needs assessment and then they bridge or facilitate connections with partners in the community. Um, and I think uh, those partners are instrumental in helping to facilitate what the patient may ultimately need. So I think we are a bridge uh, to take uh, uh, patients that may benefit from the resources that are out there and connecting them to those resources that are available. 
Um, and so that's a brief description of it. I mean, we've got several partners uh, and and that is one part of the violent injury prevention program. Another part is outreach. I think, you know, uh, you all are familiar with Stop the Bleed, I would assume. Uh, this is a, uh, an American College of Surgeons yeah. initiative yes. where uh, we interact with the community and teach basic life-saving techniques in the event that someone is bleeding to death. Obviously, this is most applicable to extremity wounds, but there is a significant, this, this, this was born following Sandy Hook when they realized that a significant number of those patients could have potentially survived had civilians been trained in ways to stop bleeding at the site of injury and then transition them to definitive care in the hospital. And so uh, we spent pre-COVID, back when we could all get in a room together and do training, uh, we spent a tremendous amount of time doing stop the bleed throughout uh, the city. Uh, it's analogous to defibrillators that you see in every high school gymnasium or theater. Now, I think right beside that uh, defibrillator, uh, you'll find tourniquets and basic life-saving uh, and hemorrhage control uh, 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 things that uh, are today maybe more likely to save a life than a defibrillator. Well, this is a, a real public health service that the trauma yeah. trauma service is doing uh, for the community, Jim. Yeah, I'm going to stop the bleed. Um instructor of course we haven't done very much since the COVID epidemic um they uh we i have a lot of friends and uh a lot of kentuckians feel that uh, if they pack a gun that uh, they can protect themselves um i know there used to be some data that showed that if you carried a gun uh, your chances of getting shot were increased rather than decreased. Uh, do you know any uh, recent data on that? Uh, is it, uh, should you uh, pack your own gun and should you get instructions? We, I know we have a couple of nurses in our OR who actually are instructors and are trying to teach uh, gun safety. But I think the real reason is they're taking people who believe that if they carry a gun, uh, they can uh, shoot the bad guy and uh, help keep people from dying. Yeah, so I think uh, the, the question about data is uh, a difficult one just because that's a very difficult question to answer. I think uh, one might intuitively uh, uh, speculate that, you know, your, your risk for injury, particularly from unintentional injury, is going to be a function of your exposure time. Just like if you were to think about, you know, what are the risks of uh, of uh, being involved in a in a in a motor vehicle accident if you if you don't spend any time in a motor vehicle, I think they're relatively low. So one might intuit that. I think that the data is there are a series of studies that you're alluding to. Uh, I think uh, uh, as a scientist, uh, it's it's very difficult or it's easy to be critical of any of those studies on both sides of this, and 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 so. Um, there's not one study I would definitely get behind. I think uh, if you are going to approach this from a public health perspective, I believe that you have to acknowledge that a clear stakeholder in this issue is the gun owner. Um, if you look at the success of public health approaches in motor vehicle accidents, the motor vehicle industry was clearly a contributor 
I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't around in the 50s when some of this stuff was, you know, really pushed through. But I don't know if they were a, a, an accepting and willing partner up front or if they were a reticent but uh, but a forced partner in the long run. But, you know, uh, in the end, mo the motor vehicle industry had to be involved in solutions to these problems. And gun owners are going to have to be involved in this, too. You talked about training. Absolutely. I mean, training, if you look at those subsets of firearm injury that we talked about, unintentional injury, those are the questions you're asking, right? You're asking, how are you storing your gun? How well are you trained to, to use your firearm? And, and, and those things become super important when you're talking about unintentional or accidental type injuries. Let, those things may be less relevant to interpersonal type injuries. All right, let, let's just get cut to the trace here. The, the elephant in the room in all of these discussions about gun violence is gun control. So before we get into that, uh, let me make a couple of personal comments for a reason, because once you start talking about this, labels start flying around. I am a gun owner. I have two uh, semi-automatic handguns and a revolver and a Winchester 3030 rifle, which is a family heirloom. Um, <laughs> I ha I'm, I'm a re registered Republican. I consider myself a moderate, which today is like being a man without a country. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm not saying this to brag. I'm just saying this. And, and the other thing is I, every, every four or six weeks or so, I go to a, I go to a shooting range. So, uh, and the reason I'm, I'm saying this is that I am not a pinko communist liberal that wants to take everybody's guns away. At the same time, uh, some of the things that go on in this country with guns are, are absolutely insane. So um, you deal with this on a regular basis. You may or may not want to get into uh, it for political or partisan reasons or for whatever, but I'm going to ask you the question anyway. And if you don't want to deal with it, we can move on to something else. But if you know, have you got some thoughts about where gun control fits into this issue of the high rate of gun violence, not only in a country, but in, in, in Louisville? Yeah, so uh, certainly it's an issue that needs to be examined. I, I think uh, uh, I think most Americans would agree if you, you know, depending on which polls you want to look at, most Americans would agree that it's an issue that needs to be examined. I think, again, going back to the public health approach, you know, individual entities that need to be addressed, if you look on this continued firearm access, who owns a firearm? Is it registered? Is it licensed? How well are they educated and trained to use that firearm? You know, what are the responsibilities of ownership? You know, if that firearm is stolen or, 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 or inadvertently removed from your possession, I think, you know, those are all individual questions that need to be looked at. And, um, I, you know, I, as a scientist, I would say you probably, you need to study those issues individually. Now, I don't think, you know, you, you need to do decades and decades of research on each of those questions to begin to parse out some logical approaches to how you're going to deal with that. Uh, I don't necessarily individually get into the specifics. I think, you know, how firearms are classified, looking at reclassifying certain types of firearms, I think is an important question. So, I mean, 
within gun control are a thousand different variables that you could look at, which you probably know better than I do. And so, uh, but I think, yes, each of those needs to be examined. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is look around the world. I mean, we know Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Germany, Germany, Britain, the 90% of the British police force do not carry guns. Now they've got they've got they've got special weapons groups that are available if they need to be called on. But in uh, all of these countries, South Korea, <laughs> Japan, their their gun homicide rates are literally a fraction, a small fraction of ours. Um, uh, just let me. I've got a a little clip out of the newspaper here that was in. This was in the New York Times. Uh, you may have read this. The New York Times on on Sunday, and this was uh, uh, in the Courier Journal on Monday. Uh, in Porter, Texas, which is a town north of Houston, uh, at a at at the birthday party. For a three-year-old child, the adults were playing cards and they heard a gunshot. And the three-year-old child apparently got a hold of a of a weapon, handgun that had fallen out of the pocket of one of the family members, and killed himself. So, the, in order for this to happen. I've got a three-year-old grandson that comes over to our house about once a week. And, and in order for him to happen, the gun, one, had to be loaded, and it had to be cocked or primed. And uh, either if there was a safety on it, the safety was off, or if it's a Glock that doesn't have a safety, the safety's on the trigger in some way. I mean, this is, this is insane. The, the, the people that, I mean, we give guns to crazy people in this country. We allow people who have beaten up their girlfriends and their wives to get guns. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 the reason I made sure that everybody knew that I have a gun on her because <laughs> I got some really strong views about this. And, and I mean, there's some very simple issues that, that have to do with background checks uh, for the life of me, I don't know why the civilian population in this country need to have a military assault weapon, a AR-15 or AK-47, or a weapon where you can pull a trigger and have so many bullets come out that you can kill 40 or 50 people in a matter of seconds. And and that's that's just a start. So. Yeah, I'll, you know, I would just say you, you don't have to go to Porter, Texas to read that story. Yeah, uh, I know. This happens in Louisville as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, families decimated and, and these tragic events happen. And Norton Children's Hospital sees uh, this um, in that age group. Obviously, you know, we're an adult trauma center, but uh, yeah. uh, you don't have to leave Louisville yeah. to, to find that story. You have to get a background check to be a Boy Scout leader. Well, you have to, if you own a car, you have to have a license to drive the car. You have to have learned how to do it and you have to pass a test. 
And now <laughs> you can be mentally ill and go into a gun shop and buy buy a, a, a you know an M16. I mean, I, I go I go to the shooting range periodically, and there are all these there's a whole rack of of assault weapons on the wall there. I could buy one. They don't know me from a hill of beans. All the things they do is see my driver's license. Well, if you want to buy a machine gun in this country, and I actually know a doctor who sells machine guns, <laughs> <laughs> you got to get. <laughs> now, this is Campbell's. <laughs> well, he doesn't live there right now. <laughs> well, I can't you know, tell you where he lives. <laughs> but I would just, yeah, I would just reiterate the fact that, I mean, Gun owners like yourself need to be part of these discussions uh, because, again, it doesn't do any good for those that don't have any uh, background to really try to dictate to everybody else. And so I think you, you you would be a key contributor to the discussions about what's reasonable and what's rational sort of under the quote unquote gun control. So. But in, in order to buy a machine gun, you have to go get a background check and go through the ATF to get special permission. We can do the same thing uh, for automatic weapons. Yeah, we could. I think we I, I think the whole issue of who if you live in Israel and you want to have a gun, it takes three or four months before they go through all the background checks. And in Israel, I think Israel is a country that literally probably has some a reasonable uh, justification for somebody who lives in a home somewhere having something like that because of the, the all the issues, the violence and the stuff goes on that goes on in the Middle East. Well, we don't have to beat this uh, issue to death. Uh, hey, listen, I'm just sitting here listening to you guys. I, uh, you know, I mean, which, which, you know, honestly, I've been doing for the whole 15 years I've been here between you and Dr. Shively. I've, I've listened to you guys for a while. Uh, anyhow, but we got you on here as the expert, so we want to put you to work. Uh, well, listen, can you give us a, uh, again, we get back to finances a little bit. If you look at the cost of taking care of somebody who has a, a non-gun-related um, uh, uh, injury like a perforated colon. Can you give us a sense of the difference in the, the cost of taking care of a person like that compared to that, that person we described earlier with the gunshot wound of the abdomen and all the other things? Uh, the end of a perforated colon, if you're lucky, you, 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 know, you go through a few things, your colon gets put back together again, and, and you're good to go. Now, uh, the I guess the, the other question about this rambling, <laughs> rambling question, how many of these people that have significant gunshot injuries turn get back to having a good normal existence and how many people carry carry on with a lot of long term or permanent disability? So I think if you look at, uh, you know, the physio, there, I think there's a physio, there's a physiologic and then there's the emotional and mm -hmm. psychiatric component to this. I think, you know, PTSD is incredibly common. So probably anyone that sustains an injury like this uh, is going to survive with some uh, morbidity. Uh, now, what you're asking is, you know, if you've got an abdominal gunshot wound are you, and you survive, you know, uh, the initial hospitalization, then your chances of returning to baseline function are going to be reasonably good. I think if you have an isolated colon injury, then your, your uh, cost is probably going to be similar to 
uh, a perforated colon, I think, uh, from diverticulitis, to answer your question. I think there is, um, throughout the country, there's trauma activation fees, which would be an interesting thing to dive into from your perspective as you think about uh, cost and hospital charges. But uh, there is a cost to having, as we said at the beginning of the show, we talked about how basically the hospital's entire resources and capabilities meet that patient at the door. There is a cost to that. There is a cost to mobilizing multiple groups of people and disciplines in order to be available at the time of injury. Some may not be needed, but there is still a cost to bringing those, those people to the bedside up front. And so that part would be different. Uh, you wouldn't have that same uh, piece in a perforated diverticulitis. But I think, uh, you know, for an isolated abdominal injury, the overall cost to charge is going to be relatively similar to a perforated colon. Now, what you're seeing today is you're seeing many more patients that are multiply injured by firearm injuries, meaning they're shot in multiple places. So an isolated abdominal injury oftentimes will be seen in conjunction with extremity fractures uh, and other injuries as well. And so having a single injury uh, is becoming a little less common than what it used to be. We now have a resurgence of COVID and uh, I know University Hospital is full. How is that affecting the staff and uh, the trauma service and continuing to take care of gunshot wounds and trauma and then having the extra burden of uh, COVID? Yeah, so it's added complexity at a lot of different levels. Uh, I think that's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, we battled with how, you know, even seemingly simple questions. We take that first patient that you described, comes in with a gunshot wound. Once your community uh, prevalence of COVID reaches a certain level, then your risk of exposure uh, in evaluating that patient goes up, right? And so you've got to take precautionary measures, meaning there's certain um, uh, uh, protective, personal protective equipment that we use when we know a patient's positive for COVID. Uh, but these patients you don't know. And so you have to assume they're positive until otherwise. So there's, a, so there's a tremendous amount of resources that go into protecting hospital staff and other patients uh, because you don't know whether that patient's COVID positive or not. And yet you still will deliver the same care that you would have prior to the COVID pandemic. Meaning uh, they're, going to, they're going to be intubated, they're going to have airway procedures, there's going to be potential risk associated with their care. So that's added an element of complexity there. If you talk about capacity issues, we have a mantra at University of Louisville that we do not divert trauma, uh, meaning that uh, we will continue. We are the only level one, adult level one trauma center. Obviously Norton Children's Hospital is a level one trauma center. But for, for the public, I mean, I think this is the trauma center in this region. You have to go to Lexington, Indianapolis, Nashville, and St. Louis to run into the next, uh, next closest trauma centers. And so we have a responsibility to the community and to the region to stay open for trauma. Uh, and we will continue to do that uh, uh, till, till the very end here. Do you have a sense of um, the insurance or the coverage, whether it's insurance coverage, Medicaid, Medicare, of most um, <clears throat> victims of gun violence, gun injuries. I mean, I'm assuming that uh, the average uh, uh, street warrior is not going to have an Anthem Cadillac plan. So, you know, <laughs> what? who ends up paying and how much does uh, University Hospital have to eat? Uh, yeah. In, um, in, this, in this situation. 
yeah, I think, you know, uh, the, those national numbers that we quoted earlier, where you're talking about a third of patients are uninsured, it's probably a little bit lower than that. I think the Affordable Care Act has dropped the overall, you know, I mean, if you look at the uninsured rate in general, uh, it's going to be much lower. So most of those numbers were from 2017 nationally. So they were, they were post Affordable Care Act. I think, uh, um, I think, uh, if you look at safety net hospitals, quote unquote safety, these are the hospitals in urban areas uh, that take care of uh, a tremendous amount of non-reimbursed care. I think uh, firearm injury does take a toll on those places. Uh, and that's why I think, again, uh, spending a dollar in preventative care up front can save you hundreds hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on the back end. And so I think uh, um, that that is a more productive approach to that. Um, I will say that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we I mean, we're seeing gunshot injuries from all over the region. Uh, if you ask me, what does someone who shot look like? I there it, it looks like anything you can think of. And so are they insured? Some of them are they uninsured? Some, yeah, some of them. And uh, so I think uh, trying to characterize or paint a broad brush is difficult to do. Okay, Keith, just as a warning, we're getting uh, close to the end of this lollipop. Uh, we've got about a five minute window left. I just got to uh, hang on five more minutes. All right. All right. You, guys are pro uh, you guys are trying to kill me out here. Yeah, it's okay. You're doing great. We, uh, I want to ask you the same question. We, we, we ran by Tuxen when we had him on here. Uh, you know, the high gun violence rate in, in, in Louisville. And, you know, the question was, uh, and he, we always, he talked uh, in, very, in a very similar way about redlining, but there are other issues, availability of guns, gangs, poverty, uh, family supervision, uh, supervision issues, and political unrest. Do you want to try to put those different uh, categories into some sort of a a priority list about why our gun violence rate is so high in this metropolitan area? Yeah, um, you know, uh, you know, we talk about battling two pandemics here, and I think uh, in Louisville, it very much feels that way. Those pandemics being obviously COVID-19 and, and gun violence. We've seen a sharp increase, uh, dramatic increase uh, over the last six months in the number of injuries and fatalities. You don't have to watch the news very long to see that our homicide, the number of homicides this year in Louisville it has uh, uh, our record numbers that we've never seen before. I think, you know, again, a public health approach, you put this these individual issues in buckets. You look at individual type issues. You look at um, family construct. You look at organizational issues, community level issues, and then policy level issues. You put each of these issues in a bucket and you start to parse out how it contributes. I think one could speculate, I mean, uh, uh, that there is a correlation, a loose correlation between how our local and national economy are doing and the number of people injured and killed by firearms. There's certainly gonna be a correlation there. And, and, and right now with COVID-19 shutting down a tremendous amount of our infrastructure, I think you will continue to see these increases. Now, are gangs a big bucket or a small bucket or a medium-sized bucket? Uh, I think, you know, gang-related injuries are a contributor. I think 
studying that has been very difficult. Uh, there's not, if you go back to the Dickey Amendment and some of the things that have sort of prohibited a close examination of the contributors to injury, you're going to be hard pressed to find numbers as to what, how big a contributor is. And so if we're going to be precise and authentic about it, uh, to answer that question is very difficult. Have y'all been forced to go in, to diversion uh, in the last few months? Well, I think, you know, diversion, as you all know, can mean a lot of different things. Uh, you know, that can mean uh, accepting outside transfers. That can be. But from a trauma perspective, again, uh, our mantra is, is uh, at all costs, we will attempt to avoid diversion. Now, that doesn't mean that other things coming to university hospital that can be cared for other places within the health system or in Louisville, certainly some of those things can be diverted from time to time. But uh, trauma, we remain steadfast in our commitment to provide that care as again, we're the only regional resource to provide that. You're the only burn center in the state of Kentucky, aren't you? Yeah, we're the only burn hospital at this point. So they're in the process of uh, receiving or attempting to receive accreditation to be an accredited burn uh, center. Uh, but yeah, right now the, the burn unit here in Louisville is the only one in Kentucky. All right, we're, Keith, we're about the end of the lollipop. Mark will uh, send you an email that tells you or gives you a copy of the of of this recording, and he'll also send you an email to let you know when it's going to be broadcast because we're doing a recording. And it'll be broadcast on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at some future date, sometime in the next probably one or two weeks. And again, we want to thank you. We appreciate you coming on. We're going to turn you into a radio personality and we'll maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think as evasive, as evasive as I was with all your questions, I don't know. I don't no. know. I think you're looking for a little more. Uh, but no, you, uh, I you, certainly you, appreciate you having me on. No, you did good, man. Thank you again. Uh, thank you very much, Keith. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Thank you Bill. all. Thank uh, you, Mark. want to let our uh, listeners know that they can get more information about Kentuckians for single payer health care if they go to kyhealthcare.org, or they can follow the group on Facebook. Also want to remind our listeners that they can participate in Forward Radio's programming, as well as donations are welcome by going to forwardradio.org. And um, as, uh, as Dr. Flynn said, Single-payer radio can be heard here on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5, on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Dr. Miller, thanks a million. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. Okay, guys. We'll see you in November. All right. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Bye. We are. Uh, let me hang on. <laughs> Get my mouse working. <laughs>